Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome into the big show, Soccer Morning, here on WorldSoccerTalk.com. I hope you are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on a Thursday. What is it, April 16th? I hope your tax day went well. We didn't talk about tax day yesterday. That's one of those old radio bits. Ah, everybody, it's tax day. Get your taxes in yesterday. Hope you got a big refund. Use your refund to buy us a mug and a t-shirt for soccer morning. That's what you should do, right? That's where we should push people, Trevor. Please go to backheel.com slash store and buy a mug. Hope your tax day was good. I hope you I hope you enjoyed USA Mexico, unless you're a Mexico fan, of course, and then you didn't. Dosa Cero once again for the U.S. We'll get in all of, into all of that today. That's going to be top of mind for a lot of you Americans out there. I'm sure we can get into what it means, what it doesn't mean. Seth Vertelny of Goal.com will join us. I'm sure somebody at Goal did player ratings, and I don't blame them, and that's their job. It's It gets people interested. People love player ratings. Sort of like power rankings. Player rankings, power, or player ratings, power rankings. Say that four times fast. I'm sure they did some. I don't think they mean a whole lot. Obviously, Jordan Morris scores. Agadello scores. Michael Bradley was, eh. Was he good? Was he bad? Who knows? That field was so terrible. I'm sorry. This is for later. Also on today's show, Ross Dunbar will join us to talk German developments. Jurgen Klopp will get into that and his decision to leave Borussia Dortmund at the end of the season, what his next challenge will be, the legacy he leaves behind at Dortmund. And then we'll also talk about Bayern Munich falling in the Champions League yesterday. And that's in our headlines. I will start with USA 2, Mexico 0 at San, in San Antonio at the Alamo Dome, 65,000 people in attendance, many of them having a, a wonderful, lovely time. It seemed to be a very mixed crowd, obviously, when I say that, I mean, there were a lot of more Mexico fans than U.S. fans, but maybe more U.S. fans than people expected. And then you do, you know, of course, we do have that unique dynamic in this country where there are people who can root for both teams based on their heritage, based on where they live, where they're from, who their parents are. And who knows, you know, which way they were leaning. Interesting discussions happening on Twitter about, uh, you know, the impact that guys like William Yarborough and Alvarado and Garza have on those on those people, on those fans. I don't know how you go about selecting your team. I don't really have a choice. I'm a U.S. US men's national team fan. Uh, I don't think I would ever wear a half-and-half half jersey, but I can kind of understand the mindset that leads you to do so. Jordan Morris, the first college player to score a goal for the U.S. men's national team since 1991. Dante Washington scored that goal. While he was still in college, clearly a much different time in American soccer in the history of the U.S. men's national team. And to have a college player, look, well-taken goal, bit of a fortuitous deflection for Jordan Morris. He was uh, the energizer bunny out there. He looks like a fullback to me running down the field. I don't know that I have a a soccer comparison in terms of his playing style, but he's, he's just got this powerful thing about him. Maybe there's some Wayne Rooney in it, maybe. A little bit, obviously not, not, I'm not putting him on that kind of skill, but just in the way he carries himself and the, the manner in which he runs. So big, big debut or big debut goal. It wasn't a debut. Excuse me. Big first ever goal for Jordan Morris. And, uh, is he going to be pushed to sign that deal with the Sounders and become a professional sooner rather than later based on this experience? I don't know. Interesting note. He could not be named man of the match last night. 
because the man of the match is sponsored by Budweiser and being 20 years old, Jordan Morris is too young to be sponsored by Budweiser. <laughs> Fun stuff. Juan Agadello with a very nice goal. His first in four years for the national team took a, a nice pass from Michael Bradley out of the air, cut inside, a bunch of Mexican players fell down, and he put away a goal. Good stuff for him. He was clearly emotional. The overriding story yesterday was the field conditions down in San Antonio. You lay down that sod, that temporary service in an indoor venue, and it was bad. There were some bounces that just made no sense. Uh, it looked ridiculous. It looked like an injury waiting to happen. Obviously, Kyle Beckerman did come off injured for the U.S. I don't have a report on him today. U.S. Soccer said it was a thigh contusion, except it looked non-contact, and he later had, had an ice pack on his knee. So we uh, we don't exactly know what happened with Kyle Beckerman. RSL fans are clearly sweating bullets today. We'll find out later, I'm sure. The question we'll get into with Seth Vertelny is whether or not you can take anything away from this game. It's a good to get a win for the United States. It's a conference booster. They didn't give up a late goal. They didn't, uh, they didn't fall after going ahead. They played relatively strong. In fact, the second half was likely better than the first half for the United States. So you can build on those things. But in terms of what it means for analyzing the, the player pool or, or looking forward into the future, I don't know if there's a whole lot there. In the Champions League yesterday, Barcelona took apart PSG 3-1 in Paris. Luis Suarez nutmegging David Luiz twice. Not once, but twice. That second one especially. Not only did he nutmeg Luis, who that's just poor defending on, on the Brazilian's part. But not only did he nutmeg Ruiz, but that finish. That curler to the top corner, just absolutely beautiful from Luis Suarez. So Barcelona with a massive, massive lead as they go back to the camp now to attempt to finish out that uh, tie out and go into the semifinals. Porto, meanwhile, as I mentioned, taking down Bayern Munich 3-1. Just mistakes all over the field for Bayern Munich. Dante with an egregious one that led to, I believe that was a Charisma goal. But both Charisma and Jackson Martinez starring for Portugal, I mean for Porto, excuse me, the Portuguese side, who now, look, the question is for Pep Guardiola and Bayern Munich is whether they can turn that around. We'll get into that question later on with Russ Dunbar, Dunbar as well. I'm sure Guardiola is going to project an image of confidence. Yes, of course, we can do this at home at the Allianz. This is not a problem for us. And 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 I, you would actually, you know, maybe favor them to do so. But Porto has given them a shot here. That that one goal that they gave up may be the difference in the end. I saw. I mentioned this yesterday. I'm just going to tap, uh, you know, quickly hit it here. Because I think it bears mentioning. You guys know how I feel about Seb Blatter. I'm sure you feel much the same way as I do. He's likely to get another presidential term when those elections come up next month. But there is now a report out from the Sunday Times in London that Seb Blatter essentially went to the Qataris and said, Hey, you've got this World Cup, which you may or may not have bought. And I will avoid investigating you or I, I will, I will keep FIFA from investigating this bid and whether or not it was obtained through nefarious means, if you will oust Mohammed bin Hammam, who at the time was Sepp Blatter's biggest competition for the presidency of FIFA. Now, this is not a surprise to anybody. It does give me an opportunity to do this. <laughs> a little Blatter drop. It's been a little while. I'm sure it'll make some people happy. Uh, it's not a surprise, but it's just another break in that wall that is just how duplicitous and, uh, and, and disgusting Sepp Blatter is as the leader of football in this world. I, I, I don't, there, there doesn't seem to be a way out of this. He's got such a strong political base that it may be, it, we may have to wait until the man retires. And FIFA, you know, FIFA is already 
so corrupt um, and and so disgusting from the from the fan level that they may never recoup their reputation, and yet we have to live with them. It's very difficult times. Let's take a break. When we come back, Seth Fertelny from Goal will break down USA Mexico. Talk about Jordan Morris, Juan Agadello. That surface. Don't go anywhere. Soccer morning. WorldSoccerTalk.com. comes to get it. Sardis making the big run instead. It's for Juan Agudelo. Able to bring it down. He's got the run from Ibarro. Agudelo cutting inside. Juan Agudelo! Dos Acero again! Back on Soccer Morning, there's a goal call from Joel, jo, jo, excuse me, John Strong. Jo, 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 John Strong on the Fox broadcast last night. Juan Agudelo with the second as the United States beats Mexico 2 nothing. Dos Acero and to talk about it, uh, Seth Vertelny from Goal, uh, Setherton Vertelny on the goal on the hotline from Goal. How are you, Seth? I'm um, great, Jason. How about you? I'm all over the place this morning. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a little I'm riding a little high from this win last night. Uh, the United States needed this. Uh, Klinsman needed this. Some of the players involved probably needed a confidence boost. And yet, here I am. The day after, and, and I said this last night, so I'm not saying anything new here. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to take away from this game. Just based on the, the field conditions, the fact that both of these rosters were limited, Mexico was certainly more limited to, than the United States. So you would expect the U.S. to win this game. What did you actually take out of it? What kind of actual conclusions can we draw? Uh, Not many. Uh, I, I think that, like most friendlies, what you take out of it is some of the individual performances. Um, a couple of guys that helped themselves out last night, I thought, were Ventura Alvarado, first of all. Uh, the first couple appearances that he made with the U.S. national team were a little shaky, but it was good to see him get the start and perform well. Uh, another guy, obviously, that sticks out is Jordan Morris. Uh, another guy like Alvarado, who we had seen in spurts, but never for an extended run. Um Showed some flashes, obviously scored, and uh, it was good to see Juan Agudelo get on the board. And um, yeah, that's sort of the thing that you normally do with friendlies is you don't look at the result, but you look at some of the individual performances. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Especially for guys who are either new to the team, relatively new to the team, haven't been in the team in a long time, as uh, as you mentioned with Agudelo. Um, you know, I, I guess you know it's it's a feel good story that Jordan Morris, this college kid from Stanford, who we were all surprised to see originally called up for the first time and then again on this roster scoring a goal and then, you know, allowing for, for the jokes. Hey, you know, he had to, he had to get back on a plane because it's a school night. He had to, you know, could, this isn't a joke. He couldn't win men of the match because it's sponsored by Budweiser and he's not old enough. Now that might have happened with another couple of players in this team, but it did happen with Jordan Morris. Did you, did you see enough from him? to think that Klinsman is vindicated on some level? Or do we just sort of chalk this up to, hey, Klinsman is being weird again and, and experimental, and let's not overthink Jordan Morris in this team? 
Yeah, it is kind of the continuation of a theme that we saw develop at the World Cup, which was Klinsman being vindicated for his faith in younger players. You know, this summer we saw it with uh, John Brooks and DeAndre Yadlin and Julian Green. Uh, and yeah, I mean, Morris kind of looked like who he is, which is a very good prospect, a little bit raw, but with a little bit. <laughs> a lot bit raw, okay. All right. <laughs> but with flashes of potential. And, and the fact that, you know, someone whose main competition right now is other Division One players, the fact that he's able to go out in an international game and even look somewhat up to speed is encouraging. And, you know, it just makes you say more and more, a Stanford education is great, and I'm glad that he values it. But yeah. at some point, you got to get this guy to a higher level of competition. You know, and, and I may be overthinking this, and certainly I don't know what's inside Klinsman's head. Nobody does. I mean, that place is a maze. You're never gonna, you're never gonna, you go back, you go in there, you're never coming out. Um, but I think that there, you know, to me, it seems like maybe Klinsman is kind of look. He he rates. He certainly rates Jordan Morris as a future. A contributor to the national team as a future professional. And it, it, this may be sort of a nudge in that direction. I don't know what, you know, I, I don't know what Jordan Morris's thought process is, but I, I can completely understand staying at Stanford and, and getting some of that education and building a life that, uh, you can, you can leave soccer and everything will be, will be good for you. Um, so I, I don't know if there's anything to that or if this is simply, you know, another shot across various American soccer. Uh, organizations bows because that's what Klinsman likes to do as well. Uh, is there is there something to that? Is there something to this that hey, Klinsman's sending Morris a message saying I'm calling you up, even though you're in college because I think you need to be a professional because then you can come and really give us your all and, and be a part of this team. Yeah, definitely. I think that you know uh, another guy that we've seen this with is Miguel Ibarra. Uh, Klinsman has these guys that. He spotlights and he calls them in now, it seems like, no matter what. And you have to wonder what sort of advice Klinsman is giving Morris behind the scenes. Uh, is he pushing him to sign with the European team? Has he been pushing him to turn down the Sounders offers? We're not sure how much Seattle has been offering him. Uh, with, with Klinsman's preference for his players to go test themselves abroad, you wonder if he's been doing any work behind the scenes to try to uh, pull some strings in, in Europe. You, you never know, but you know, he has these guys and, and he wants to show them that he has faith in them and in their ability, even though they aren't playing at as high of a level as most of their teammates with the national team. And, um, just curious to see what happens with Morris over the course of the next year. Now, have you heard anything about the process of the Sounders attempting to sign Morris. I know there's an offer on the table or there have been offers on the table. Do you, has it, has it been reported that any of it, it's about money or is it simply about him wanting to stay in school? Because, you know, there's an argument to be made that this, this event, him scoring for the national team against Mexico is only going to, um, is only going to make him more expensive for his hometown team. I, I think there are a lot of factors, but. My understanding is is the biggest factor is simply that Morris likes being at Stanford. He enjoys playing college soccer. He enjoys being in college. And 
also he's he's not dumb he realizes the value of a stanford education and what that is going to mean for him after his soccer playing career is over so i think that the sounders have have done pretty much whatever they've been able to do to to try to get him in and just hasn't happened yet so we have Jordan Morris, again, the first college player in uh, 24 years-ish to score for the United States of America. That was not something I ever expected I'd, I'd be th- I'd be saying, Seth, because he is in college. Um, and, and again, moving forward, <coughs> excuse me, exactly what, where do you think his place is? I mean, he's, he's age eligible for, uh, for the U23 team and the Olympic squad when that comes around. He he's obviously gotten a, a taste of senior team soccer. He's not yet a professional. Is is are we just going to have this this uncomfortable situation where he's a college kid who is is still featuring heavily in these teams that are are now in the, in a modern age supposed to be about professional players? Yeah, I think that right now he's not looking like he's going to leave school anytime soon. He's probably going to have another season there. And Klinsman obviously has faith in him and will continue to call him into the national team. I I think that with the U23 team, there's another opportunity for him to get some more minutes uh, at a level higher than college and uh, hopefully help the U.S. qualify for the World Cup. And that's that's coming up sometime soon. And yeah, I know it's it's strange, but you feel like he's going to be kind of in this uh, purgatory state for a while where he's better than a college player but not quite a pro player but also kind of a national team player uh it's gonna be a, a strange period uh as long as he's still at stanford he's a, he's a throwback seth he's, a, he's an american soccer throwback is it 1989 what what year is it that that kind of thing yeah. uh, let's turn to to juan agadello i'm gonna focus on the goal scores and then maybe we'll look at the overall team performance because as we already outlined it's difficult to glean anything from that overall team performance for a number of reasons, not just the surface. Juan Agadello comes back into this team. He obviously had that, that year wandering in the desert, uh, not being, uh, not being able to find a place to play. He re-signs with the New England Revolution. It's been going pretty well. I mean, he, he's shown flashes of, of what he can do. He's clearly rusty. Uh, did that goal get him back into this picture? I mean, forward depth has not been a thing that we've really thought the United States had recently. Yeah, I think it was big for his confidence uh, to get back into the national team, first of all, because it had been a while since he was with the U.S., and then also to, to come on as a sub and score right away. That That's, that's a big boost. Uh, what I think will get him more in the national team picture is actually putting together a run of goals with the revolution. Uh, the, the thing with Agudelo and this has been true almost his entire professional career, is he's never really scored a lot of goals. Um, he's, he's put together little stretches here and there, but he's never had a big goal-scoring season in MLS or in Europe. Uh, so I think it's a big year for him with, with the Revs. Uh, he's kind of taken that starting spot from Charlie Davies. Looks like he's going to get a chance to, to go out and play a lot of minutes week in, week out. And if he can actually put together a run of goals that I think that's really going to boost his stock with the national team even more than, than scoring last night did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's a, he's a very talented player. And, and I think I saw this, I don't have the tweet up in front of me, but it's something like, 
giving uh, giving a, a, just some perspective on where Juan Agadello is. He is 22 years old. Is that right? So he's he's two years older than Jordan Morris, who we're all excited about. But he, he, you know, he's and he's still three years younger than Josie, and he's still I think he's a year younger than Giassi Zardes. So it just goes to show you how. Uh, you know, how early Juan Agadello arrived, how quickly he disappeared, and, and now he's coming back with plenty of time to still be a major, major part of this team. Right, exactly. It's like the Freddie Adu factor. You just, you can't believe how young he still is. And I guess that, that's a product of scoring your first national team goal when you're 17 years old. Absolutely. I remember those days. Uh, so the United States, again, it's, it's a confidence boosting win, Seth. It's something they needed a game where they played well enough to win and nobody could really say, well, they got lucky here or there. They needed a game where they didn't give up a late goal, which had been the trend. They needed a game to hang their hat on. And and I don't know that this means anything or really informs the Gold Cup, but it has to it has to take some of the heat off of Klinsman. And I've been, you know, I've been vociferous and sort of giving uh, my perspective on Klinsman's lack of direction. But I don't know that this really gives us any sense that he has any more than he did before. Uh, no, I mean it's a it's a friendly and it's against a pretty weakened Mexico side. I think you would consider that maybe like a C plus B minus team. Uh, but at the same time, it was a good performance, and and we've seen those less and less frequently over the last few months after the World Cup. So I think you have to at least. A- Oh, I seem to have lost uh, Seth there for a second. I apologize for that. Let me see if I can get him back just to uh, to wrap up a discussion on USA Mexico again. You know, you have you look at the you look at the the field conditions, which again were were so atrocious that I'm not even sure you can blame players for not being able to complete a basic pass. Um, at some point, in the United States, and this was. This was the issue with uh, this is why uh, Michael Bradley's pass obviously make worked for Juan Agudelo. At, at some point, you just imagine players went, "Let's not put the ball on the ground anymore because we don't know where it's going to go." You, and you couldn't even a couple of times the United States had an opportunity to break, and for whatever reason, the break didn't come together. And and I just can't imagine that the surface wasn't part of that. Seth, do I have you back? I apologize for that. I'm I am. All right, so. We're sort of putting some perspective into this game. Again, it's a midweek friendly that didn't involve a FIFA date. It's, it's, we all know it's a cash grab. And I don't mean that necessarily in some, you know, anti-corporate, this sucks. Why are they doing this kind of way? Except for the fact that they did risk injury. And, and we did have one injury. Kyle Beckerman came off with what U.S. soccer reported as a thigh contusion, looked to everybody on television like it was a non-contact injury. And he subsequently had the ice on his knee. Should we believe U.S. soccer here? Uh, no. I, I think that whenever there's an, an injury like that, the f- first report is not to be believed. Uh, the the difference is usually they'll say something like, uh, there's a sprained knee, we'll evaluate it later. And then 90% of the time it turns out to be a, a torn ACL. I, I, I hadn't seen one where they did a different part of the body entirely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I can't remember watching a U.S. game where the field was worse than that. I mean, yeah. it was a disgrace, really, to, to have an international game on a surface like that. And I think that 
U.S. soccer and the Mexican Federation and some need to have some kind of a meaningful discussion about how they can avoid having another situation like that again because it's it's not conducive to good soccer and it's it's dangerous and and we'll wait and see what happens with Beckerman but it can happen when there are so many outdoor stadiums with good services I understand they want to get these games in locations where they're going to sell out and where the, and where they're going to spread the game around the country to get as many people to see the US and Mexico as possible but they 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 have to do something to avoid yeah. having another game on a surface like that. You know, and I heard a lot of people, I saw a lot of people on Twitter saying, hey, you know what, this is CONCACAF. And certainly Miguel Herrera sort of addressed this after the game too. He said the, the surface wasn't an excuse. They were playing on the same thing we were, and this is what you're going to see in CONCACAF. And I, well, I understand that, and I, and I understand what Herrera's spin has to be. From a fan's perspective, when people are throwing out there, oh, this is CONCACAF, you're going to see worse surfaces, or, or it's just going to, you know, it's going to be bad. Maybe you could argue that some preparation for World Cup qualifying, but on the other hand, it's a meaningless game. And again, you're putting players in jeopardy. It looked to me, and this is again another reason why I think analysis is very difficult, Seth. People were trying not to fall down. It's that sort of half stride running that people do when they're on an icy surface. Or, you know, I used to work in restaurants and you go through the back after they mop the floor and you just don't, you're like, don't pull my groin, don't pull your groin, don't pull your groin. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah, and and how many passes did you see where the ball just smoothly rolled on the ground from the passer to the person he was passing to? It just Didn't. there was always a little bobble, there yeah. was always a hop. Sometimes there was a big hop; it would just pop up in the air. And you know, Herrera says this, this happens in Concacaf. This happens in Concacaf when the U.S. plays at like Antigua and Barbuda. Right. You know, <laughs> this shouldn't happen in the U.S. Sure. when when they have so many. Yeah. Good grass services available to play a friendly. And, on. and you can argue, certainly argue that from Concacaf's perspective, these are your two most high-profile teams. With all due respect to Costa Rica, if you want, <laughs> if you're going to put them on a stage and put them on television and have <laughs> these two countries, Mexico and the United States, with with their attention on these teams, put it on a decent, you know, put it on a decent surface that can show the best of what you have to offer. If anybody in Zurich or anybody in Europe sort of flipped by that game, they must be going, "What the, what the hell is this?" CONCACAF is a joke again. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it it affects the gameplay, but more importantly, it's dangerous. Uh, Kyle Beckerman got hurt. It was a non-contact injury. And these are the things that are more important than just not having the most aesthetically pleasing game to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Seth Vertelny from Goal.com. Uh, Seth, we were sort of uh, outlining whether or not player rankings had any business being out there, but... I, I get why they're done, and uh, I know Goal has them. Goal had plenty of coverage on this uh, on this game as well. I look forward to seeing what happens in the near future. If you were going to have one takeaway, if you're you know you're looking at this game, you maybe you're writing a column on it, maybe you're doing a recap, and and you really want to focus on something. Is it Jordan Morris? Is it something else? Yeah, I, I think that that Morris stands out because he's he scored a goal, uh, but I, I think that. Before his injury, I thought that, that Kyle Beckerman was looking very solid again. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, but I think that is another main takeaway and even maybe more important than Morris because Beckerman is still right there in the mix as, as part of the, the top 
A squad starting 11. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, we're only a couple months away from the Gold Cup this summer, a tournament that the U.S. really wants to win. And I think that is another big takeaway is that Beckerman, barring any sort of injury, we'll have to wait and see on that, still looks like very valuable asset to the U.S. starting 11, just like he was at this summer's World Cup. Um, another one was, was Omar Gonzalez. We hadn't seen him with the U.S. national team in a long time. And, uh, you know, he had another really good performance, much like uh, he did when he got a shot at the World Cup last summer. So those two, uh, I think, you know, really cemented their status as, as starters or at least right up there in the mix for, for starting spots. And that might be even more important than, than Jordan Morris, who realistically probably isn't going to start or maybe even play with the, the U.S. and the Gold Cup. Seth, appreciate the time. Seth Fertelny, it's, uh, it's S Fertelny on Twitter. Go follow him. See his work at Goal. Thanks for the time, Seth. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll shift over to Germany. We're going to talk to Russ Dunbar about Dortmund, about Bayern, about the uh, situation with Jurgen Klopp, and uh, obviously Bayern falling behind in the Champions League. Soccer morning. WorldSoccerTalk.com. Here we back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning, joined now by Ross Dunbar, covers German football for many a website. He's got a piece on Bayern Munich's loss yesterday over at DW.de and uh, Jurgen Klopp's departure from uh, Borussia Dortmund at Fox Soccer. Ross, how are you? I'm very well, Jason. How are you? I'm well as well. I appreciate your time today. It's uh, It's a... Uh, Bit of an interesting couple of days in, in the German football world, especially for the two biggest clubs in the country. I'm going to start with Bayern Munich. They go to Portugal in a Champions League tie that everyone would fancy them in, and they lose 3-1. Now, of course, we have to address the the uh, roster issues, the, the squad issues with the injuries and the like. But I, I was anybody, are you as are you are surprised by that result as I am? Um, yeah, I'm definitely surprised because I, to be honest, I haven't seen Porto play this season. So the way that they approached the game was, was, was quite alien to what I expected. Um, obviously there was a Spanish feel to the team and with guys like Oliver Torres and Jackson Martinez up front. Um, but at the same time, I have seen a lot of warning signs in the last six months. And, you know, I spoke on another show last night and said that, you know, when Bayern go into the Champions League, the reality is that they get a different level of competition to what they get in the Bundesliga. Mm. So you can you can have a team like Mainz or Augsburg or or even Hoffenheim press them and harass them and chase them and have the same intentions. But when you play a team like Porto, who are an elite side, then they have got exceptional quality on the counter attack. And like we saw against Wolfsburg, like we saw against Borussia Mönchengladbach. Uh, Bayern were caught out with a high press and certainly with a high defensive line. In, in terms of, I mean, that's inter- interesting that you bring that up. That the uh, the competition is is certainly different in Europe than in Germany. But I mean, that's true for a lot of these sides. I mean, it's true that when Barcelona and Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid obviously range outside of Spain, they're they're taking on a different 
level of competition, or they're playing each other in the Champions League in this case. Why why would that be of a, of a specific issue for Bayern Munich and Pep Guardiola? Um, because because I think you know you, you know they, they can they can um, they can play against a team like Frankfurt on Saturday, for example, um, and there were warning signs of you know their vulnerability in the high press. You know if you know the opposition plays with two strikers and they really press the the central defenders, then you know you, you begin to see that there are actually some faults in this Bayern team, but. If they win four one, and if they score goals like Lewandowski did, then people don't really want to complain about it. And to be fair, they don't have to complain about it. But you still would imagine that uh, Pep Guardiola would adapt to the situation. It's very interesting because actually in the last few weeks they've they've gone away from the sort of style that they played last night, and they were playing like they did against Dortmund and Leverkusen. And they played a three five two, and it was much deeper, much more conservative. They were very methodical in the way they approached these games. So it's actually very strange that Guardiola has decided to go back to this system for a game of that magnitude. Some of this came down to individual mistakes, and certainly Dante stands out. Is that, you know, is that down to concentration? I mean, these things happen sometimes, Ross. I mean, this is a, game, this is a, a sport that requires intense con- concentration, and even the best players in the world miss sitters. They, uh, they, they make bad passes. They, 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 they have howlers. In this case, is that something to be concerned about moving forward? Um, I think I think you could approach it from different different standpoints. I mean, I, I definitely would agree with you that you know individual mistakes just happen in football. I mean, the Jerome Boateng mistake for the third goal, for example, was completely out of character, um, given how well he's played this year. For me, he's probably the best centre back in Europe at the moment, and to make a mistake like that, which seemed really basic. Um, that was definitely um, just a case of, I think, an individual error. But with the cases of Xabi Alonso, for example, who lost the ball for the first goal, I mean, to me, that's something that has been standing out for a few weeks, and certainly in the German media, mm-hmm. I think Xabi Alonso has had a lot of criticism, um, not from the fact that he's not good enough. I think he's maybe just at the stage of his career where maybe his legs aren't going quickly enough to, to move the ball and not be caught out in a high press. And Dante, for example, um, you know, We've kind of addressed that situation so many times in the past. I mean, in the game against Hanover, uh, he was subbed off in the first half. Mm-hmm. Um, so there certainly has been warning signs, but I do agree with you that you know, you know you can take into consideration that these were individual mistakes, and perhaps putting the blame onto Guardiola could be could be unfair. But I think maybe it could be justified as well. Well, I mean, as as we sort of outlined, going to Portugal with this skeleton crew with no Ribery and no Robin and uh, no Alaba and no Schweinsteiger, and not not that that's you know, not that every one of those players is 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 crucial to them winning away in Europe. But there's got to be enough sort of um, you know just. It's got to be just an adaptation situation. Like, oh, this is this is who we are, and then you all of those players are missing, and maybe we're changing just not how we play necessarily, but certainly there's going to be some sort of uh, there just can't be as much confidence. Essentially, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you mentioned some names there. I mean, David Alaba. Uh, I mean, there's probably not a player in European football, maybe apart from Paul Pogba, who's like him. I mean, mm-hmm. it's impossible to replace a player like Alaba. Someone like Aryan Robin is impossible to replace. Mehdi Benatia, for me, I think he's really important to play in such a high line. So when you take those three players out of the equation, you almost have to adapt your playing strategy. You can't play a high formation, a high sorry, a high defensive line 
when you have a player like Dante who is quite slow in the transition back to defence. Um, so that's definitely the one thing I would lay at Guardiola's door would be would be not adapting to that game. And like I say, it's, it's interesting because in the last few weeks when they went to Dortmund, for example, and they went to Leverkusen, a, a team who play a very similar high-pressing, aggressive formation to Porto, mm-hmm. they played a 3-5-2 and it was very deep. And like I say, you know, they were looking to kill the game quite shrewdly rather than, you know, trying to play like they did against Porto, which was, uh, in my opinion, quite naive. Uh, that, that does not sound like uh, something that you would expect out of Pep Guardiola, although he does say, you know, of course he's going to say this in the aftermath. Ross, he says that they can go back home and, and overturn this deficit, and they're certainly capable of doing that. But what will it take to do so, and how would you imagine things will shift from Porto's perspective, I mean, even if we're not quite, you know, even if you haven't seen them play, obviously in Europe, on the road, uh, at Bayern Munich is going to be a different mindset than than you play with at home. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting one to, to, to talk about because I think, you know, Bayern could go gung-ho from right from the very start and they could lose a goal within the first two minutes again. And that's basically the tie over. So you almost have to approach the game with a certain degree of caution, but at the same time, being able to, um, yeah, produce the attacking football that's going to that's gonna get you goals. I mean, the worrying thing from my from, from Bayern's point of view, I think, is that they don't really have any major options that they could change. The Pitbull Viola has only, only really got 12 or 13 players that he can work with. Um, you know, I think Bastian Schweinsteiger could be back for next week. Maybe that's the only... The only player who would return in time. I don't really know what difference that would make. So it's it's going to be a big task for Bayern. I mean, I, I I've seen Bayern fans on Twitter being quite being quite realistic about the situation. That actually we're not really expected to maybe overturn this tie with such a with such an injury crisis. And perhaps they're right. But it's interesting to know. Interesting interesting to see how that affects the overall picture of the season because. Bayern has placed a lot of importance on the Champions League, and Guardiola really wants to really wants to take Bayern into the next level. Uh, certainly, why he was uh, why he took that job, and, and why they would they like who doesn't want Pep Guardiola? But then uh, you know, with the, some of the shakeup uh, of the of uh, of Bayern Munich, and certainly uh, some of maybe his relationship with the press in the early going, I imagine things are not as as simple as that. I'm going to turn to to Dortmund now and talk about Jurgen Klopp. Uh, has been announced he's leaving. Um, he says he's leaving. This is, is this just the natural culmination of his time there? He has been, he has personified that club despite all of the great players that they've had. He's been that club for quite some time and, and it's going to be very odd not to see Jurgen Klopp on the sidelines for Borussia Dortmund. Yeah, I think, I think when, when a player, when a person like that embodies the club, embodies the region of Germany and, and he embodies the style of football that Dortmund played when they when they won back to back championships. I think it's going to be quite strange to to watch a Dortmund side that isn't coached by Jurgen Klopp. At the same time, there's an element of fascination to see how they actually go about replacing him and and how they manage this evolution that they need to that they need to certainly create in the summer because um, you know this season has been a, a bit of a disaster from from Dortmund's point of view and. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a strange it's a strange announcement in my opinion because you know as, as early as sorry, as early as last week, um, yeah, I saw guys like Vatska, the chief executive, saying that Klopp wouldn't be one of the people who would leave in the summer. So it must have been something very recent mm. for him to make that decision. I mean, they lost 
quite comprehensively to Gladbach uh, on Saturday. It was a really one-sided game, and um, maybe that was the turning point from from Klopp's point of view. But it, it seems I'm not saying it's a rash decision, but it seems yeah. as though it's definitely been thought about over maybe one or two days. I mean, because again, because he is he has been so important, and because he has been the steward of their success in this generation uh, of Dortmund's existence. To, to see him leave, and as you said, if it was said that he was going to stay and now he's leaving, is, is there going to be a sense from the, from the Dortmund faithful that, that he's abandoning them? Or is this, is this going to be, oh, thank you very much for your service. We understand you want to try something new. No, I think the Dortmund fans would, would, would uh, still have the same uh, appreciation for him as they have done in the past. I think, the, I think most people, including Dortmund fans, were probably quite realistic in that, in that Jurgen Klopp was inevitably going to go to England at some point, um, whether it would be next year or the year after. I mean, he had a contract until 2018, so I don't think people would have expected him to bail out now, but given that him, he himself has admitted that he doesn't think he's number one choice for Dortmund at the moment, he doesn't think he's the, the ideal type of coach, then you almost just have to go along with that. You know, you can't, you, you can't force him to stay on when he thinks within himself that he's not the the right guy for the job. Um, I'm then really interested to see the reaction, certainly on Saturday when they play Parabon and, and whether Klopp's departure has any impact on the rest of the season. The question, uh, again, for the outside world now is where does he end up? He's going to be hardly sought after. He's, as you said, he's, men- he's been mentioned as a potential uh, in- a candidate for England, uh, for jobs in England. Obviously, Manchester City jumps top of the list only because of their resources and the fact that they aren't a- they haven't been able to get over that hump in the Champions League, and they seem to have taken a step back under Pellegrini this season. Is that is that your front runner? Or is certainly the bookies' front runner. Um, I would say it's definitely possible. I mean, I, I just just in, in my eyes, I, I see someone like Liverpool as being a, an ideal option for Klopp because you know Germans of that generation have a massive respect for clubs with tradition, and you see the the. Um, the way that Liverpool are thought of in the German media, they're very highly, highly, um, highly admired, and so that to me that would seem like the obvious option, perhaps. But at the same time, if if Manchester City were to approach him, I think, I think it would be interesting to see whether he would would take it on. They certainly have the money. Um, there's been talk that maybe Pep Guardiola would be the next Manchester City manager. So um, there's quite an interesting battle there between yeah. Klopp and Guardiola for maybe the next Man City job. So. <laughs> But I definitely think it's inevitable that his next post will be in England. Well, I've heard him connected to, obviously, City, but certainly Liverpool and Arsenal as well, um, which, you know, again, I think all of these things are, are possible. How likely they are, I'm not sure. I guess for me what the question would be is what what does Klopp value? Because, I'm, you know, I put this out on, I put some some tweets out about Manchester City tripping over themselves to, to get Klopp's agent on the phone, but... People say, oh, it's not about money for him. And it may not be. He may just want the, the challenge. He may want to go into the right situation. He may want to be given complete control of a club and the opportunity to build it the way that he did Dortmund uh, over the last uh, couple of seasons. Is that is that where you think his mind is? Yeah, that's the sort of thing I could imagine. The sort of challenge I'd imagine Klopp taking on. A team that maybe hasn't achieved a lot um, over the last maybe 10 years and maybe needs some fresh impetus, and that's why I suggested Liverpool. I mean, obviously it depends on what happens with Brendan Rodgers, um, but at the moment it doesn't seem as though he's doing a particularly good job there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, when, I, when I look at Manchester City, I, I kind of ask myself whether 
I could imagine Jurgen Klopp's style of football matching that squad that he has at Man City. And I'm not entirely sure it fits. Um, you know, I, I couldn't imagine players like Samir Nasri, for example, playing a really high pressing, enthusiastic style of football. Um, but like you say, I mean, all of these things are possible. I don't think there's any definitive answer right now. And Klopp said that he didn't have any plans. So I'm sure that, you know, if Manchester City wanted them, they probably could get them. Is there going to be an exodus from Dortmund? Uh, do you think that Dick Klopp is going to be able to attract some of his players or, or, or those players at Dortmund now currently, obviously Marco Royce is top of the list, may end up moving on because Klopp's moving on? Um, I get, I get, I get the feeling that Klopp probably wouldn't want to go back to Dortmund and pick some of the players from there. Um, although, um, from, from what you read in the German media this morning, Klopp's departure potentially could keep Mats Hummels, uh, signaled in the park. That's potentially a benefit of that. Mm-hmm. Ilkay Gundogan, it looks as if, uh, his future lies elsewhere. Uh, Marco Royce, uh, is a, a bit more complex given that he signed a new contract. Um, he's a Dortmund boy and maybe he wants to stay there, but at the same time, when Barcelona, Real Madrid come calling, eventually then, you know, you, 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 would, you would imagine that he would probably leave as well. Um, the, the problem is when you mention those three players, I don't think those three players are the issue. Dortmund really have to reconstruct their squad. They have to get rid of Immobile, Mkhitary and players like that. So, you know, while we talk about losing big-name players, they still have to offload players who maybe just aren't performing in that squad. Uh, who does who does Dortmund turn to to replace Klopp? Uh, I I think it's, it seems likely that Thomas Tuchel would be the number one candidate. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because a club of that size, you would think that they would consider international options, but I kind of get the impression that they will go for a German speaker, someone who's who's... who's Kind of based in Germany. The other option I heard was Paulo Souza from FC Basel. Um, he's a German speaker, obviously played for Dortmund when they won the European Cup. He's done a good job in Switzerland. That could potentially be an option. But apart from Tuchel, I don't really, I don't really know of any other names that would be available. I mean, Lucien Favre and Marcus Weinzierl of Gladbach and Augsburg, respectively, have been have been put forward. But these guys are on long term contracts, and I don't think Dortmund would want to to pay a large sum when they really have to invest in the squad. And Tuchel, Tuchel just makes sense. He's, he's you know, a really highly rated coach. He's young, fresh ideas. He's German, knows the league. It, it makes complete sense, I think. Uh, it, certainly um, that element of it is, is going to come into play here. And, and, I, and I guess Dortmund, I, I, help me kind of, um, kind of place Dortmund in the European hierarchy because – you know, when a job opens up like it, or when when Real Madrid is looking for a new manager, clearly Manchester City is new money, but they, they, they rate on that level. When uh, you know, when the biggest clubs in Europe are looking for a new for a new manager, the the there's a usual suspect list. There's certainly big names. These are uh, accomplished coaches with European pedigrees and 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 cup titles to their name. Is Dortmund not on that level, or is that be- simply because they choose not to be? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't think I, I think financially they could they could attract a big name coach if they wanted to. I would imagine that Jurgen Klopp was on a a pretty handsome salary given that his contract was until 2018. Um, the thing is that I think the expectations of what Dortmund can do outside of Germany are a bit different to to maybe what happens in in the Ruhrgebiet. I mean, I think if Dortmund were to finish second or third or 
you know, obviously fourth is probably pushing it a little bit. If they finish second or third and do well in the cup and maybe do well in the Champions League, that would that would be a successful season. They're not expected to compete with Bayern year in year out. So it is interesting, but I mean, I, I think given that Klopp is leaving, they really need a, a root and branch reconstruction of this squad. So yeah. to bring someone in from the outside who doesn't understand German football, doesn't understand the environment, that would be a bit of a risk, I would think. And Batska, the chief executive, has already said that they would look for security rather than, than speed when they make the appointment. So, yeah, um, yeah so I think it, it tickled, tickled to me uh, strikes as being the obvious appointment, and I can't think of any others in the German sort of market who would who would take the job. I don't know if any of the top the top coaches would, would want to leave their positions and like I say, I mean, I just can't imagine Dortmund paying a massive buyout buyout fee either. What kind of shadow uh, does Klopp cast on his uh, on his successor? And certainly um, you know, in, in a in a different sort of sense, what is his legacy at Dortmund going to be when everybody starts to write the postmortems on the, the Jurgen Klopp era? Um, I think certainly Dortmund, they're, like I think I've just said that their expectations maybe aren't as high as what they are internationally, but I think they definitely have changed. I mean, when Dortmund took over, when sorry, Klopp took over in 2008, Dortmund were obviously off the back of a financial implosion. They were kind of yo-yoing about mid-table, and the way that they approached the first couple of seasons with Mario Götze coming through and Kevin Grosskreutz and Nuri Shaheen, it was it was fantastic and really refreshing. I think, unfortunately, the last two seasons may have soured the legacy that Klopp will leave. I don't think the same pressure will be on the next uh, appointment. I think if someone like Tickle, for example, came in, I think he would have a, a relatively free reign at trying to change the squad around, playing a different style of football. And, and to be honest, you know, regardless of who they bring in, the season probably couldn't have got much worse. I mean, Dortmund are still in a relegation battle, which is quite astounding to think with six games to go. Um, so I, I'm not sure that the legacy that Klopp will leave will have any bearing on the, the success that comes in. Russ Dunbar covers uh, covers German football for DW Sports and uh, has a piece up at Fox Soccer this morning as well that you should certainly read. You can follow him on Twitter at Russ Dun- Dunbar 93. Ross, uh, Ro- <laughs> sorry, Ross. Thank you very much for your time and your insight. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll open up the phone lines. You want to talk about Jurgen Klopp, Bayern Munich, Champions League, USA, Mexico, whatever is on your mind on a Thursday. Hit us up. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Phone lines are now open, 646-832-3909. Anybody want to crow, dos aceros type stuff or not? Or do you have a perspective on this? I'm getting, people on Twitter don't like the fact that I'm being cynical about this. I'm not being cynical about a 2 nothing win for a B team over a C team. I don't think I'm being cynical. I'm being realistic. I'm having a perspective on this. Look, is it good that the United States beat Mexico last night? Absolutely. Is it good that it was 2 nothing? Absolutely. 
It only adds to the mythology of Dos Acer, although, come on, a friendly with those teams doesn't add much. A little bit, a sprinkle, a saison. And that's what I love about that, about Dos Acero, is it's taken on such proportions now that when the United States goes up 2 nothing through Juan Agudelo, people are actively rooting. U.S. men's national team fans are actively rooting for the United States not to score another goal because it feeds Dos Acero. Because it, it, we can chant it with the scoreline meaning something. I hear, I know here's somebody who wants to crow about Dos Acero, Washington and New York. What's going on? How's it going, man? How's it going? Dos Acero, baby. And I don't care about B, C, D, Z, anything like that. If it were the other way around, Mexico would not be pointing out letters. They'd be saying Dos Acero too. So Dos Acero, baby. Okay. All right. Eddie in Brooklyn is on Twitter. He says, like I said last night, new rule. You can't say Dos Acero if you bitch about the SAP button not working on Fridays. That's a shot. It's <laughs> a shot at people's language skills. Uh, look, I mean, it is what it, it look. It is what it is. There, there's a certain amount of cultural appropriation on the part of the U.S. men's national team fan base, which, let's be honest, includes a lot of Spanish speakers or people of Hispanic extraction who have Spanish in their homes. So it's not like they're just borrowing. But yeah, look, when you got a bunch of white people yelling Dos Acero, Washington, maybe that's a maybe that's not the best. But we yeah, but those, at this point, Dosacero is like RSVP. RSVP is in French, but people use it all the time. Dosacero, <laughs> it's okay with That's me. That's right. I see what you're saying. I can dig that. You got anything else? Or you just yeah, you want? Yeah, I do actually. I do. So I'm I'm um, curious about one thing. When when I saw Juan Aga, the first of all, I loved uh, turf aside because we all know turf was turf is crappy. So let's stay away from that for now. But I I, I did like uh, you know his score. I love the fact that he you know he kind of turned the corner yesterday. He's back in the U.S. soccer's limelight. But my question is, I do notice this. I notice this about him and I notice this about Freddie Adu, that they go into what I call the U.S. soccer's Bermuda Triangle for a while. Like they go, they disappear. They do really well. And you say, wow, this is the next great hope. And then they end up, you know, in Bermuda somewhere, you know, in Bermuda Triangle, meaning they disappear. What what do you think happens? I mean, do do they fall out of favor somehow? Do they well, make a comment? Because I noticed that this happened when Freddie Adu left MLS. That's when he kind of disappeared. And then with with Juan Agudelo's when he made certain comments, that's when he disappeared. Like, is that really? Are we really that petty? I, I think that it's it, look. I think in, in the Agudelo's case, it was a matter of circumstance. He wanted to move abroad. He wanted to take his shot in Europe especially after having been traded from the Red Bulls to Chivas USA and then to New England. And and I don't really blame him necessarily. He just came up against the fact that he tried to sign in a country where he couldn't get a work permit because he wasn't yet established as an international player. Um, and then, you know, that wandering stuff around the continent, why he never actually made a, a deal and signed with anybody, I don't know. I'm glad to see him back. I I I, I, I I think that it's an individual circumstance with him because I don't want to put him on Freddie Adu. And second of all, Washington, Freddie Adu is a player who I don't think really impressed anybody that much while in MLS. You remember, DC United tried, didn't quite work out. They traded him to RSL. That's how they. That's that's how Nick, uh, Nicky yeah, Romano. He, he was like fourteen, fifteen. I mean, he's one of the youngest. No, no, I, I don't. I don't you blame know, there's, him. There's, there's, there's immaturity there. There's I know. To be said I know. About that. I, you, you know that when you sign someone. No, I don't blame him necessarily for what happened to him in terms of his pro- career progression. I mean, he chose to sign. Let's let's be honest about that. Or his mom helped right. helped him sign that deal. He could have gone to Inter Milan um, as a mm-hmm. as a as a youth player. 
but but I I think that he's got he's got a very dis- different situation and he became you know he became a wanderer way in a, in a much different way than than Juan Agudelo did. And I have hope for, for Adele. I don't have much hope for Freddie Adele. I got to go. Thanks for the call, Washington. Thank Appreciate you, Cameron. Bye-bye. Uh, there you go. So uh, a little a little dosacero plus talk of uh, Juan Agudelo. Lawrence wants to talk USA-Mexico. What's going on? Hey, the greatest thing ever about friendlies is that when you win, you can be loud and obnoxious about it. You can hold it over whoever you beat, and you, you can be stupid. You can draw things from it that shouldn't probably be drawn from it. And when you lose, you can use excuse, hey, it's just a friendly, so it doesn't matter. So there's a lot of that going on. we got a lot of USA fans being loud and stupid about drawing stuff that probably shouldn't sure. be drawn from uh, a look. friendly with two two BC teams. And, and we got a lot of Mexico fans going, hey, it was a bunch of BC teams. It's just a friendly. doesn't matter. No, no, look. That's, and I, that's and what's and awesome I, about friendly. I, I, thanks for the call, Lawrence. I, I, I think, and I've got a tweet right here from Daniel. If the U.S. lost 2-0, you'd have a thing or two to say about Klinsman and the state of the team. You're never positive. If the U.S. had lost two nothing on that field with that team, I would have said, "Well, that didn't. That wasn't great. No, nobody had any fun, but it doesn't mean anything." I would have been consistent about it because I could. I can't say ahead of the game. Well, look at the conditions. Look at the makeup of the two rosters. Look at the fact that it's midweek. That it's it's mostly MLS players and Liga MX players. I and and then backtrack afterwards and say, "Hey, wow, what a great performance the United States put on. Klinsman really got his tactic right. Tactics right. Blah blah blah." I can't do that. And I think that while Klinsman coached that game fine and good, it didn't, in the context of it, it just doesn't mean a whole lot. That, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, let's go to Gary in Austin. What's up, Gary? Hey, man. It's, uh, so I was at the game last night and showing, I know the field aside, it was terrible and whatever, but Kyle Beckerman, I think, makes Michael Bradley look that much better. And so I was just wanting to wonder what you were thinking. Who's, who do you think the next Kyle Beckerman or that they should be uh, looking at in the man. national team? You know, that's a good question. Beckerman's, uh, Beckerman's traits, he's not the most, he's not the fastest player. He's not the most physical player. Well, he can be physical. He's not the most, uh, athletic player. I think he reads the game very, very well and he is accurate with his passing and he is smart with his passing. He knows when to, uh, take a chance and when, when, when to maybe play sideways. I mean, w- look, we, we get upset when players, especially like Mixed Discarude, and this is a matter of expectations of the individual players. If Mixed Discarude is playing sideways passes all game, we get upset about it. But if you've got Kyle Beckerman behind Michael Bradley, playing some sideways passes, helping the, bo- the ball get wide, maybe helping it get funneled to Bradley, then you're okay with that. Uh, maybe we'll trap. Maybe that he's that guy. That's I mean, what I, was thinking too. I, I think he's got the eye for the pass. I think he's got the understanding of the game that's coming along. There is something else about Beckerman that's that's the calm though, and, and I don't know that there's another player right now where I I would put on that kind of Kyle Beckerman eye of the hurricane sort of calm. Yeah, he brought in Perry Kitchen yesterday, and I just didn't feel like he gave the same vibe as Beckerman did. But yeah. I feel like Will Trout might be able to do that. Yeah. Maybe in the future or something. You got anything else, Gary? No, that's it, man. Thank you. Appreciate the phone call, Gary, in Austin, uh, chiming in on USA-Mexico. Next up is uh, Carlos, USA-Mexico as well. What's up, Los? Hi, how you doing? Um, I was just calling to um, kind of chime in on the whole Mexico-USA game. You know, as a U.S. fan, for me, I think it's important that we kind of take a step back. Is it good that we won the game? Yes, but... I think this game is more misleading than anything else. I mean, well, that's all, look, 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 Carlos. Carlos, that's only if you let it be misleading. I'm not misled. I'm gonna wait. Look again. 
I've said all, I've said all along, you, you're going to judge Jurgen Klinsman by the Gold Cup performance. Now, I can be worried about the path he's taking. I can be worried about the preparations. I can be worried about whether or not he's getting this team ready to play in the Gold Cup. But I don't know if it's going to be wrong until we get there and we see how they perform in that tournament. So I'm not going to be misled, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the whole Morris storyline, I was surprised that he was even starting for the game. You know, he scored a great story, but I don't think we should jump ahead of the gun and say, no. oh, this is a future starter. No, I mean, no. it's just not going to happen. And let's be realistic. We were playing a seaside when it came to Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. 100%. Not trying to take, not trying to take anything away from the U.S. because I'm behind the U.S. 100%. But when it came down to it, I just, I, for me, the game was just more frustrating than anything else. I mean, Yedlin, I just, the guy just does not convince me as far as huh. his defensive duty. So. Man, look, I, the thing I is, think, go ahead. I mean, yeah, no, I was just saying, look, I want to like the guy, but every time I see him, he makes me nervous, and it's just, he's not a good right back, at least not right now. Let's get some time to develop. Appreciate the call, Carlos. I, we could go into right. individual player performances and really talk about, like, our perceptions of how they played. And, and here's the thing about that game, and another reason why I think di analysis is difficult is the surface and the conditions and the team, they made everything so wildly subjective. I, I saw people on Twitter hating on Michael Bradley's performance, and I saw people on Twitter holding up Michael Bradley as 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 wonderful in this position, and this is where he should be, and look how good he's playing. I know he had 59% passing uh, per passing percentage in the first half, which is terrible for Michael Bradley. It goes to show you just how bad that field was. Did he play well? I, I thought he played okay, but again, I don't know for sure. And the fact that people who know the game are way far apart on how well different players played is indicative of just how weird that game was. Preston, what's up? Hey, Jason. Uh, just calling in from Utah. I wanted to talk a little bit about players that did pretty well, even though the, I agree that the friendly doesn't really mean anything. It was fun to watch, and it was good to see a couple players do well. Uh, I think Mick Disgrude had a good game. Um, playing on the outside of that diamond, which was a little weird to see him out there. Yeah, well, if you're gonna, um, look, if you're gonna play the diamond, there's no other place for him because Michael Bradley's a ten. Yeah, Beckman's the six, yeah. and you know where do you put Mix? So I thought that was a good place for him. I think that we could see him there in the future, um, maybe with uh, Alejandro Bedoya on the other side. Um, and I was really encouraged by Ventura Ventura Alvarado. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he yeah. he played really well. Um, I I'd love to see him in the future, maybe with John Brooks as his um, center pairing or Michael Roscoe. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, but, it, it uh, was it was pointed out, Preston, that last night. It was pointed out on the broadcast, a couple of places on Twitter that the game really set up very nicely for both Alvarado and Omar Gonzalez. You could not play the ball through the ground on the ground through the middle. You just couldn't do it. That's true. And, and so lots yeah. of lofted balls, lots of crosses, lots of opportunities for Gonzalez to do what he is best at, and that's winning balls in the air. So when you say that, I, I thought Alvarado was fine too. Again, difficult to assess their performance because of the conditions. I thought he was fine. I thought Gonzalez was pretty good. But how, how much does that translate? I have no idea. Yeah, and we'll, we'll find out if, if, you know, he's put into the Gold Cup team or, or not, but, uh, also, I wanted to just talk really quickly um, on RSL. 
Okay, go fast. You know, I, yeah, really quick. I understand that it hasn't been the prettiest season. Um, you know, haven't scored a whole bunch of the run of play. They've had some zero zero draws, but they're still unbeaten. Yeah. Um, you know, still making it work even with the absences of players. Um, anyway. Just wanted to shout out to no, my I, RSL boys. And, 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 I, well. and I think it's important to note that if you're going to do a transition the way that Kassar is, is doing a transition at RSL, and they're going to change some things about the way that they play, they're going to sort of break down from the Jason Christ era and move into something new, which I have no problem with. He's the coach. That's his decision. Then the best you can ask for is sort of treading water until you get going. And you have to have faith, of course, that they're going to get going. But treading water yeah, right well, now is fine. You know, holding teams goalless is good. Because that means you don't have to really rely on on attacking that attack clicking in a new system. Yeah, once Joel Pollock comes back, I think, yeah, I think there will be, be a magic. lot more dynamic attack. Yeah, appreciate the phone call, Preston. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jason. All right, there goes uh, Preston. Let's turn now to uh, John in Portland who wants to talk about Diasi Zardes. What's up, John? Hey, Jason. First time, long time. I was talking with a buddy of mine, and, and we were talking about Josh Zardes' holdup play and uh, and how good it looked, obviously, pitch aside and everything like that, um, and how he compares to Josie in that regard. And I know Josie's not a world beater in terms of holdup play. He's good. But, you know, at this point in, in Zardes' career, especially last night in the game, looking back at the last couple games, you know, his ability to, to stay upright. Yeah the ball, wait for guys to come on and lay it off. I mean, it looks really good. Yeah, I, mean, is I, I, I was encouraged. Is something we can look forward to for the next decade? Is he going to ever surpass Josie in that regard? I, well, I mean, it seemed to relieve pressure from the back really well in the second half. Yeah, the thing, the thing about both of them, uh, the thing about both of them is that I don't think that's their natural game. I think they're both better with, they're better facing the goal than they are with their back to the goal. Or they, they would prefer, they're more comfortable. Let's say it that way. They're more comfortable facing yeah. goal than with their back to goal. I think that's always, it's always evident with Josie. I think he's, he never really looks comfortable trying to, to do hold up play. He can get it done, but he's got a big first touch too often. Uh, Zardis had a couple of moments last night where I sort of noticed how good his touch was on a terrible surface. Right. I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty good, but he's inconsistent with it. And I don't know that he's getting enough reps in that spot doing that thing. That I'm really going to be trusting him to, to be that guy for the national team down the road. You know what I mean? I I think it's possible. I yeah, think he's yeah, got the but, skill set. I mean, right now, right playing yeah. for LA, he's combining with Keane. But what another year or two? Keane's gone. Can he become the focal point of that and build that in LA? He's what 22 years old, something yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, think about him four years down the road at 26, 20, 23 in Russia. Yeah. Maybe he builds that skill and, and and he bulks up a little and he's just the man up front. I don't yeah. know. It, it, it seems enticing. It, it absolutely does. I appreciate the call, John. Thanks a lot. There goes John in Portland. Let's uh, turn now to Richard in New Jersey. What's up, Richard? Hey, hey, hey Jason. How you doing? Good. Uh, first of all, I was going to say, I, first of all, I just want to say I spoke to Trevor. That was actually pretty cool. So <laughs> I got a little excited about that. Trevor's a celebrity uh, now. Um, I, just want to, I just want to speak to speak to, speak about Freddie Adu, you were saying. Like, I, 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 I just want him to he's not great European, great player on the European field anymore. Like I'm not even pretty do hater. Like I want to fill up the union thing when he signed with the union. I was super excited, but now he just runs around Europe. Like I'm going to try to get to Europe. I'm trying to get to Europe. And yeah. like, he's, and he's running out to these places like Slovakia. He's in Finland now. He played in Finland, I think last night. He didn't even get a, get on the field. Like the, I just want him to get out there. Like Wanda Dell was sort of that way, but he just 
said, I don't want to say he took his medicine. He's like, okay, I'm not going to make it to Europe. MLS might be the way to go. And I just want Freddie to like do the same thing. Like supposedly one of the talk was he had Bayou type money waiting for him to Cosmo. He's like, no, I'm rather go to Europe. Just go back to MLS and go back yeah. to America. Just that's who you are. You're not a European style player. Uh, you, know, you know what I'm saying? I, look, I think there might be a couple of things at work here. And yeah, uh, uh, this is all guess. This is all guessing on my part. I'm not trying to play dime store psychologist on Freddie. You do. But you got to imagine that's got to be tough for him coming back to the States, that he is outside of maybe Landon Donovan, outside of Alexi when he had the beard and the hair and he doesn't do that anymore. And Freddie Drew is the most recognizable American soccer player we've got. That people know, people who don't know soccer know Freddie Adu because of the hype machine, because of the Sierra Mist commercials, because he was called the next Pele and everybody knows who Pele is. So I imagine he coming back to the U.S. and especially playing for a club that Pele played for. I mean, how much pressure and just how much, how annoying would it be to sort of have people yelling at you all the time? Hey, Freddie, you know, what's going on? Like, I don't think that that's probably a good experience for him. I don't know that he's hiding out in Finland. But if you're going to go hide out, isn't Finland the right place to go? I mean, you know, he, he got a little bit of pub for signing with that team. They had some weird press conference deal. But I don't know that he's going to be under the, the spotlight that he would here. And I know that's odd to say about America and soccer, but it's probably only true for Freddie Adu. Got- I mean, yeah, and I, and I hear what you're saying. Like, I just want to say, like, dude, you, you, you're not that – you're not – the hype machine is dead. Just – Play, play the game, play in MLS, do good in MLS, and then maybe then someone will come call. Yeah, but 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 I don't, I don't think he, I don't. Fred, so right I, now, just I don't think that Freddie Adu can ever be a normal player, uh, Richard. Thanks for the call, man. I got to move on. I don't think he can ever be a regular player. I don't think he can ever be a regular guy. At least not while he's still in his playing years. And the kid's twenty five years old. It's not done for him athletically yet. Unless he's just not good enough, and he's willing, he's clearly not ready to hang him up. And what would he do? What would he transition? David, you're on the air. What's up? Yeah, twenty five or thirty five. Um, does anybody see? Did anybody see him actually play in Brazil? He got like maybe about a total of thirty minutes. I saw all of them, and let me tell you, the guy looked out of uh, out of shape, overweight, and he just looked horrible. Uh, he should be. He's lucky he's getting a job anywhere. Anyway. So, you know, I was just going to say, and you've already stated it, you know, Mexico C team versus U.S. B team, that should be what we expect. I think Dos Acero in sort of a, an odd sort of counterintuitive way is actually a compliment to the Mexican national team. Because when they go down one nothing, unlike some other teams like off in the U.S., they don't go into this shell and try to keep the score down or panic for 15 minutes. They have a tendency to turn right around and try to get right back into the game, and they leave themselves vulnerable at the back. And I think that's a big reason why there's been a bunch of those Osados. But, I, I, Jason, I, I'm just going to say, you know, Jordan Morris, he scored a nice goal, had a nice touch on that on that goal, but I wasn't. I was not impressed. I thought he was completely overmatched out there. Yes, he's got great speed, but I wasn't impressed. I don't think he belongs on on this team. I know well, that's not the the narrative going on right now. I don't. And, I don't. And I, I'm just don't, well, don't build a straw man, David. I'm not sure that there's a lot of people calling for Jordan Morris to be some sort of Gold Cup hero or something. I, I, I think that he's clearly got some developing to do. I got a bunch of calls. I got to go. He's got some developing to do. And he's extremely raw. And again, I will still question Klinsman calling him up, whether he scored a goal or not. I mean, that isn't 
justify Klinsman necessarily. He tried really, really hard last night. He showed some some raw ability. I don't know. I mean, you can't. And I'm again. I'm gonna throw this out there. Hard to judge him on that surface. Nelly, what's up? Or whoever this is. Who's this? Hey, this is Nelly from Dallas. What's going on? Hey, Jason. <clears throat> hey, uh, after last night's game, so uh, I like to read uh, the Spanish media. Yeah, their tweets and their their reports. Sometimes I just like to see what excuses they're going to come up with. And something that I I found interesting was um, they were talking about how uh, Miguel Chihu Herrera was going to try and convince Ventura Alvarado and William Gargoyle to bring him over to Copa America Mm -hmm. to entice him and bring him over because he saw what he liked from Alvarado especially. Do you think there's a chance that we may lose those two? I mean, Yarbrough said he was in play with the USA, but Alvarado, do you think we may lose any of them? Uh, you know, I have no idea what's in those guys' heads. I don't know how how Mexican they feel, how American they feel. They probably feel equally both. And, you know, I the question of whether or not this is a international f- uh, soccer is a matter of heart or head is an open question, and it comes down to the individual players. Does Does... Uh, does Alvarado, does Ventura Alvarado see his future as brighter with the U.S. national team than with the Mexican team? I have no idea. And this is a recruiting game, too. Jurgen Klinsmann saying stuff in, in his ear and in Yarbrough's ear, and so is Miguel Herrera whenever he can get a, in touch with him. I don't, I don't know how these things work necessarily. Now, I, I, I think now if, if, if for any reason they do get called for Copa America, does that mean that Alvarado can't play for the USA anymore. I, I forget how if he, if he plays, that kind of tournament would if Alvarado would work. Pl- if Alvarado plays for Mexico at the Copa America, he is locked in because that is a FIFA sanctioned tournament and it's competitive. So he's not locked but in. He has to officially play, right? Like he has to officially be on the pitch, right? Yeah, he has to. Correct? He has to take the field, right? It's not just being named to the team. He'd have okay. to take the field. Yeah. Thanks for the call, man. I appreciate. It. I got to move on. Couple more calls before we get out of here. Let's go to Cole in Indiana. What's up? Hey, Jason. Um, I just wanted to get your opinion on the left-back situation right now and see who you think is going to be a starter for the Gold Cup, if it could be um, Garza, Shea, or if you think well, Fabian Johnson will take that up. Can we just can we just stop for a second and enjoy the fact we have options at left-back? Are you kidding me? Uh-huh. Like, wow, Absolutely. when did this happen? I looked down, we had DeMarcus Beasley making a comeback. I love I loved DMB, and that was great that he was able to fill that role. But now all of a sudden we got Greg Garza coming along, and, and Breck Shea is rounding himself into a decent left back. I, I mean, defensively, still lots of questions there. Still open to interpretation whether he's ready to play at the international level, especially when you go into the later stages of the Gold Cup and it's Mexico and Costa Rica and Panama and, and, and those countries, Honduras. But I see enough there, and he's certainly dangerous going forward. So I think what we're what we're talking about here is that it may be situation uh, it may be ter- determined by the situation. It may be determined by the matchup. It may be determined by who's on the other side or how the balance of the formation is working out and whether Klinsman wants to push forward with his left side and Shea on overlaps or if he has somebody on the left wing who can play with his feet on the chalk and maybe he needs somebody who can cut inside a little bit more or he wants a stay-at-home defender. And certainly Garza is a better stay-at-home defender than Shea. So I don't know that we can pick that we should be picking between the two right now, Cole. Right. All right, appreciate All the right, call. sounds good, Jason. There you go. Uh, let's uh, go to the last call of the day. Jason in Vegas wants to talk about Jordan Morris. What's up, Jason? Hey, um, hey, I just wanted that uh, you had one call the 
caller just a few minutes ago was saying that he didn't understand, you know, he didn't think Morris should have been called up and thought he was just fast. Was he watching the same guy game I was? Because, the, I mean, fine, it's a Mexico C team, but they're still wearing a Mexican national team jersey. Yeah. Which means they're not schlub players. And he looked, it looked to me like they could, they could barely contain him. And this was a guy in his first appearance. I thought he was pretty good aside from the goal. Well, I mean, it was, was, it, was it was interesting to see some of the commentary while he was out there and, and, and some of the reaction to the fact that, Hey, look, first of all, he's a trier, which I, I will always respect. He, he goes out there and he busts his ass. And he clearly won. I mean, he's 20 years old. He's not, he's playing in front of 65,000. He looked like he wanted to vomit before the game. He was so nervous. And then he goes out there and he busts his ass. And that's all I can ask from a kid that young. And again, whether he has the skill level to be on this level, I don't know yet. But if you, if you consider that he's fast and you cannot teach speed, and yeah, maybe we rely on, on speed too much in the U.S. I, I still, I'm not going to hate on the guy because he can run fast. I'm not going to hate on the guy because he put pressure on the def- on the defense because he can run fast. And even if that's all we saw, then what you're saying still applies. Yeah, I just I just I just remember a guy you know who didn't exactly have the kind of speed Morris had, but you know back back you know back in the day, Josh Wolf was an aggressive put pressure on him, you know, kind of guy up top. And yeah. Morris kind of looked a little bit like that to me. Well, what, what um, I saw, what I see I, a little I, bit more. I, I don't think this is a big enough sample size to say, oh, hey, here's our next star forward. But, no, no. I mean, he had some nice touches. He, he, he you know, he's, like I said, he certainly busted his ass. And I, I, I thought the touch on the goal was a pretty nice touch to get the ball out to his feet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, lots of players in that situation, especially as young and inexperienced as he is, would botch that touch or they'd cut too wide or they'd flat out just miss the shot. They'd put they they put it across, uh, you know, they go back post and miss. And that happens all the time. So I th- I don't think we should underrate his his ability to finish that 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 goal. But again, as you said, sample size and the like, it makes it difficult. Appreciate the phone call, Jason. I'm uh, wrapping hey, this I one up. Hey, I got one more thing real quick. Uh, too late. Dropped him. I, my fault, Jason. I apologize. We do got to wrap this up. I'm going to, before I go, I'm going to suggest that you go over and read Simon Evans' uh, Twitter uh, feeds, SG Evans on Twitter. A frequent guest of the show, columnist at World Soccer Talk. He is at the CONCACAF Congress. I'm not sure where that is right now, but it's happening. Uh, with, uh, Jeffrey Webb is, uh, the CONCACAF president is addressing the, uh, the, the collected, uh, uh, representatives of, of all the, the countries of CONCACAF. Here's just a couple of tweets. Series of speeches and eulogies in support of bladder coming from the floor now. Honduras, Jamaica, Haiti, Turks and Caicos. This is turning from a CONCACAF Congress into a pro bladder rally. Puerto Rico and Panama, latest to praise bladder and, co- and commit vote. This is all under approval of minutes from the last Congress, by the way. Dominican Republic representatives talk of historical roles of Moses, Christ, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Mandela, and Blatter. That's the guy. That guy. Go to 3nilfc.com to buy your soccer morning t-shirt. Go to backheel.com slash store to buy your soccer morning mug. Thank you very much for all the calls today. You're all brilliant. I hear you're very polite on the phone when you call producer Trevor. That's great. You could give him a little bit more trouble if you want to in the future. That's okay with me. Let's get going. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Big Friday episode. See you then.